are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi everybody, David Guzik here. So glad that you could join me for today's YouTube Live. Uh, I'm pleased that I'm here in Santa Barbara for one of these. Last week I was out of town and uh, unable to do it live from location. And I have to say that next Thursday, I'm going to be flying back from Florida on that day. So I'll try to do a pre-recorded uh, question to, as I did last week. But every Thursday when I am able, either live or uh, here on the live chat, I will be either live or by pre-recorded. I will be either here in Santa Barbara or somewhere else doing one of these live question and answers. And it's pretty simple. Uh, you, in the chat window, you submit something in that side chat window, uh, either a question or a comment. I'll either try to answer your question or respond to it the very best I can, and we'll um, make our way through this time. So uh, I usually like to open up with a few things that are just kind of on my mind, and I've been really struck by something. I got a question from a pastor the other day. I guess it was a, today's Thursday. I guess I got the question on Tuesday from this pastor. He emailed me and said that there was somebody in his congregation who uh, married to his wife. They would both say they're believers. They're really trying to walk with the Lord, although the wife attends his church and the husband, for whatever reason, he feels like, I, I don't want to say this in the wrong way, but maybe he's just kind of, the church isn't spiritual enough for him. Let's say that. And uh, now the husband wants to divorce his wife because they were both previously divorced and this is their second marriage for both of them and they've come under the influence of a teaching that i see is more and more out there today this teaching that god never allows remarriage in the case of divorce number one and that the godly thing to do is to divorce your present spouse and go back and somehow either attempt to remarry or to remarry your previous spouse. And I just want you to know, I think this is an unbiblical and a dangerous doctrine. Now, I'm not going to take the time right here to really dive deep into this, but I think I need to do a video on this, and hopefully within the next few weeks I'll collect my thoughts together in a coherent manner. But really, this is a dangerous teaching that I think it does a couple things fundamentally wrong. And again, I'll try to make a video later that explains this in greater detail. Here are some of the fundamental things it gets wrong. Number one is it takes one passage of Scripture that speaks about uh, divorce and remarriage or uh, the idea of to be remarried if you are divorced is committed adultery. It takes this one passage of Scripture and it uses it to, so to speak, cancel out other passages of Scripture. And, and I just want you to know that that's really not what we do when we're trying to rightly divide the word of truth. It's not like we take one verse and use it to cancel out other verses. What we do is we try to understand the whole counsel of God in its entirety and see how the Scriptures connect and relate to one another. And so this business of sort of using verses to cancel out other verses, it's bad. It's not rightly dividing the word of truth. And, and here's the other great weakness of it is that it uh, ignores what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 
in the whole context of marriage and divorce and remarriage, it ignores what it has to say in 1 Corinthians 7 about living and glorifying God where you are presently called. And going into this, it makes a third error in that it tends to try to correct one sin by committing another sin. Well, that's just a brief summation. I just want you to know that I'm kind of startled at how this seems to be coming up. And it may be purely anecdotal on my part. Maybe I've just been running up against this. But it seems to me, at least by my own anecdotal information, that there's a rise in this teaching that, uh, number one, uh, anybody who is divorced can never be remarried and it be pleasing or honorable in the sight of God. And number two, that the really godly thing to do is, if you are divorced and remarried, to divorce your present spouse and go back. This, this is not a biblical teaching. I hope to maybe in the next few weeks do a YouTube video on this idea and um, what I think brings some biblical correction to this idea. Second thing is a question that came up not too long ago. People want to know, uh, a question was asked me, why didn't Jesus speak out against polygamy? And the answer to that question is he did. Uh, he did in Matthew chapter 19, turning to it now in my Bible, trying not to hit the microphone that's right in front of me. Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus said, um, uh, have you not read? This is in the whole context of marriage, divorce, remarriage. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the whole idea there, is two become one flesh. Not uh, three become one flesh, not four become one flesh, not whatever else kind of multitude become one flesh. No, that's not the idea at all. The idea is that the two become one flesh. And the critical phrasing that Jesus uses to really make it apparent that he knows it is that phrase in verse 4 where he says that he who made them at the beginning. Jesus is reminding, I wouldn't say he's revealing this, but he's reminding us that this was God's intention from the beginning. Now, where polygamy was practiced in the Old Testament, you never see God's blessing on one of those families. You look at the profile of any polygamous family in the Old Testament, and it's a mess. It's a complete mess. However, we do see that God's intention from the beginning was one man to come together with one woman. In what is intended to be, not always fulfills us, of course, but what is intended to be a lifelong uh, partnership. Okay, uh, going to the questions now in the chat window. Sean says, thank you for your prayers, Pastor. God bless you, Sean. I watched that message that you preached at Calvary Chapel, Ontario. Good job. I already emailed you about that. But blessings to you, Sean. We're happy that uh, you're growing in the gifts that God has given you. Oakley fan, thoughts about abortion? Well, I, I have two thoughts on abortion uh well probably more than two but two things come to mind immediately there is the biblical view and then there is what can be accomplished in the civic realm okay here's the idea look biblically there's no other place other than us to say at conception that life begins that Life in the womb is recognized as a real human being. And the lately 
in the United States are European or foreign, uh, foreign, I mean foreign outside the U.S., our outside of the U.S. Um, viewers may not know, but there's a couple states in the United States that have recently passed in their state legislature radical abortion laws. And when I say radical, I mean any abortion at any time for any reason up to the time when the baby is out of what we might call the birth canal. It's an unbelievable law where there's only a handful of countries in the entire world that have such radical abortion laws. Now, this is something horrific before God, and it's a sign of the decadence and the decline of the United States morally that this is viewed honestly as a moral achievement by the people who passed this law. as something good. So, Biblically speaking, life in the womb, to the very best of our ability, should be. Please say, well, what about miscarriages? What about this? Listen, these are things beyond anybody's control. All we can do is the best we can do, and uh, we should do what we can to preserve life in the womb. And God bless those who are working in loving and proactive ways to help those who find themselves in problem pregnancies to overcome the shame. Listen, this is the thing that leads most young women, many young women, I should say. Let's not say most. Let's say many young women in the United States to abortion. It's just a sense of shame. They they feel they can't live with the shame of living through the pregnancy. And then what the thing, otherwise they could just give the child up for adoption. But um, God bless those who are working hard proactively to provide loving, safe, wonderful alternatives to abortion. Now, civically speaking, in the United States, uh, it's just a mystery to me why uh, it's not understood that the um, abortion laws as they exist in the United States are unbelievably radical. They're not centrist at all. They're not moderate at all. Uh, They're radical and should be exposed as such. Okay, uh, going down, Joel says, hi, brother from Tula, Mexico. Hey, blessings to you, brother. Um, question, are you coming to Cuernavaca on February 18th and 19th? No, I am not. I am already booked up for February 18th and 19th. I'll tell you what, though, I look forward to any chance that I have to visit my brothers and sisters in Mexico. God is doing a wonderful work uh, in the evangelical world in Mexico. It's really remarkable to see. I know so many wonderful pastors and churches that are being planted and people who are coming to Christ It's a a wonderful season of opportunity in Mexico and in the Spanish-speaking world, which reminds me. Some of you know that I have a commentary on the entire Bible on my website, EnduringWord.com. That commentary is also translated into Spanish on the website. You can go to EnduringWord.com, look at the commentary menu, and you'll see Comentario en Español, and you can see... Sorry if I'm butchering Spanish pronunciation there, but I think you get the idea. You'll see that the entire Bible commentary is translated into Spanish. And I love that to be a blessing for Spanish believers and pastors and teachers and anybody who can benefit from that Bible commentary. Uh, I look forward to the next time I get an invitation to go minister down in Mexico and when it works out on my calendar. Thank you, Joel, and bless you. I, I pray you have a great time at that conference. Witness for Jesus, can you explain... 
how the dead will be judged in Revelation chapter 11, verse 18. How can they be judged at his second coming when the judgment is at the end of the thousand years? Or does this refer to the living dead? Well, uh, let me look that up here. Uh, Revelation chapter 11, verse 18. And one of the things I would say just off the top of my head, uh, witness for Jesus, is we always have to remember something about the book of Revelation. Is that we, uh, well, first of all, the book of Revelation is fundamentally a Old Testament book. What do I mean by that? Well, even though it was written in Greek and it's contained within the New Testament, that collection of books, there is no book in the New Testament that makes as many references and has as many connections to ideas and phrases and concepts in the Old Testament as the book of Revelation. It tops out all New Testament. So we need to understand that it's a very um, Middle Eastern book, very much uh, dominated by the thinking of the East, not by the thinking of the West. And in the biblical thinking of the Eastern world, chronology is not so important to them. In the Western world, uh, sort of inherited from the Greeks and the Romans, when we tell a story, it's very important for us to tell it chronologically. And, and we're just kind of obsessed, maybe isn't the right word, but we think chronology is very important. In the Eastern biblical mindset, what should be called the, the Near East of the biblical world, it, it is not so important, the chronology of a story. And so um, Revelation very much reflects this. I think you run into trouble when you try to make the book of Revelation strictly chronological. Now, I think there's a general chronological flow, obviously, in the book of Revelation, but it's not a strict matter. Okay, Revelation chapter 11, verse 18, it says, The nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged. Well, and that you should reward your servants the prophets. This is a great statement in Revelation chapter 11, verse 18, that goes up from heaven at the initiation of this judgment. And really, uh, a witness for Jesus, I, I wouldn't try to make this too complicated. What it's talking about is setting in motion the judgments of God. The judgments of God are not completed at the glorious return of Jesus at the end of Revelation. They're not completed uh, at Armageddon. They're not completed until the great white throne judgment, but surely they are set in motion. And what we find in Revelation chapter 11, verse 18, is praise in heaven for God who is establishing, who is carrying out these judgments. And so I, I don't see much of a chronological necessity there in Revelation chapter 11, verse 18. I hope that's helpful for you. Um, Peach, it's asked for blessings. Yes, blessings to you. Joel. What are your thoughts? Hold on, I lost a question there. Joel, what are your thoughts on apologetics? And do you think that enough is done in the church to help people stand in this faith in the current cultural climate? Well, Joel, um, the question is, is enough being done in the area of apologetics in the church? We live in a day when we just have to make sure that the church has the answers for the questions that the culture is asking. And we have a bad habit in the church that we tend to focus on questions that people were asking a generation ago. And it seems like the um, 
swiftness of cultural change is so rapid in the present day that the questions change more quickly than they used to. So we need to be equipped in an apologetics. Apologetics just means to give an answer to the culture. We need to be able to give an answer to the world around us from the Bible about the questions that the culture is asking without, may I say this, without letting the culture set our agenda. Just because the culture thinks something is important doesn't mean that in God's big scheme of things, something is ultimately important. It means we need to be able to speak to it. But we need to be able to speak to the culture without necessarily buying into the culture's full agenda. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. But no, apologetics is important. But listen, apologetics needs to be done right. And let me say something to you here, Joel. I see in the Christian world today, especially on the Internet, a lot of very sloppy apologetics. I see a lot of finger pointing. I see a lot of uh, false and empty accusations. I see a lot of guilt by association. I see a lot of confused, I'll just say it, fraudulent thinking out there where research isn't done carefully and, and well. Um, apologetics is very important, but it's important to do it right, full of integrity, full of honesty, uh, because the world does not need to hear a fraudulent apologetic from the church at all. But that's a great question, Joel. All right, uh, Natty, here we go. My question, what do you think about demons taking human shape and pretending to be human beings, aiming at bringing chaos to the lives of saints? Well, Natty, you bring up a very interesting uh, uh, idea here. And the idea is we know from the scriptures that angels can take on human appearance. We see this happening several times in the Old Testament. We see occasions in the New Testament where angels appear to people, and at least at first, the person that they appeared to thought that they were just another human being. I'm thinking of uh, the angels at the tomb of Jesus. So on some occasions when angels appear, many occasions, I should say, when angels appear in the Bible, they are stunning, glorious creatures whom human beings would be tempted to worship. There are other occasions when angels appear that they seem to be just human beings. And even the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament, tells us that some people have entertained angels unawares. They thought that they were just helping people when really they were helping angelic beings. Now, the corollary thought that you bring up is... Is it possible for demonic spirits to also take on a human appearance and maybe either work mischief or, as you say in your question, so chaos or whatever? I, I want to say we're not told anywhere in the scriptures that demonic spirits can do this. And I want to be very careful about giving more credit to the devil and demonic spirits that so to speak, work for the devil or in association with Satan himself. We want to be very careful that we don't give him more power or more credit than the Bible does itself. So I would have to say that we just don't know scripturally whether or not this can be done. And we should be very wary, very careful when people make claims to it. 
um, we remember that the Bible tells us that our struggle with the demonic world is not according to flesh and blood. That's in Ephesians chapter 6. It's not according to flesh and blood. So we should not be looking for direct demonic representatives, emissaries. We should not be looking for demons in physical form because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, even though the scriptures do tell us that angelic beings can from time to time take on a physical form. So just remember that concept from Ephesians chapter 6 that uh, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. God wants our um, combat in the spiritual realm to be just that, spiritually focused, not materially focused. I hope that's helpful for you. Okay, uh, Abele, I hope I'm saying your name right. What are your thoughts on the last on last time about church prosperity and um, faith word? Well, there was a time in my life when I did a great deal of research on what's sometimes called the word faith movement. Sometimes it's called the prosperity gospel. And I think that this is a message that does a lot of damage in the church world. First of all, it gets people focused very much on material things and judging somebody's spiritual life or spiritual health by their material possessions or prosperity. I think that's a difficult and a dangerous thing. But the biggest problem that I see, I'm not trying to say for a moment that this is the only problem, but the biggest problem I see in the word of faith or the prosperity gospel teaching is it's not what they teach. Although, let me say, there's a lot of problems with what they teach. I'm, I'm not saying that there's no problem. But there's a lot of problems with what they teach. But I'm just going to make the observation that the even greater problem than what they teach is what they don't teach. And what my observation is, is that in this uh, prosperity gospel, word of faith, health and wealth doctrine, whatever you want to call it. They don't have a biblical understanding of suffering. And brothers and sisters, you need to open up your Bibles, go through the New Testament and do word searches for the word suffering, affliction, tribulation. Just search those words in the New Testament. See what the New Testament has to say about suffering, tribulation, affliction. Again, this is another YouTube video I should make teaching about this specifically. But the Bible says that there is an important and valid and important place in the Christian life where God uses suffering. And the general attitude of the word of faith, prosperity, doctrine, health and wealth people is this, is that any kind of suffering is just from the devil. It's from the devil. That's where it comes from. That's all there is to it. Well, this is a wrong and I would even say a dangerous doctrine for believers to believe. We must understand that, of course, not all suffering is ordained by God for us. There's some suffering we bring upon ourselves and there's some suffering that God would deliver us from if we would just believe him. But there is an important place uh, that God, an important sphere, I should say, in which God uses suffering in the life of the believer. Okay, uh, next. Uh, Sean, hit the thumbs up and download the Enduring Word app. Hey, Sean. John, I can't believe what a knucklehead I am. I should have let off with this. I'm very excited to say that now we have an app for Enduring Word. And if you go on the iTunes store now, right now, we only have it on the uh, Apple or the iPhone platform. We're going to add it to Android soon enough. 
And right now, you can only really access the text commentary, the written commentary from the app. We hope to add the audio and video links later. But right now, you can get the Enduring Word app from the App Store on iTunes, and it presents my text, my written commentary for your phone or mobile device in a very quick, efficient way. Uh, get that Enduring Word app. Thanks for the reminder there, Sean. Alejandro says, could you speak on dispensationalism? What is your personal opinion? Well, Alejandro, I will say this, and you're going to have to stay with me as I explain my answer. But let me just give the answer. I am a dispensationalist. Now, I don't know if a gasp went up from any of our viewers when I said that I am a dispensationalist. Because in some circles, dispensationalists are nothing but crazy people. They're just kind of cuckoo. They're nut jobs. If you believe in dispensationalism, you, you're, you're not sophisticated in theology. You don't understand theology. You're some kind of weirdo. No, listen. If you boil down the core of what dispensationalism is, it's simply this. Dispensationalism believes that there's a difference between Israel and the church. If you believe there's a difference between Israel and the church, that Israel and the church are not essentially the same thing, then you're a dispensationalist. Then you believe God has a dispensation of dealing with Israel, and you believe that God has dispensation of dealing with the church. Now, now, there are all kinds of what I would consider to be crazy dispensationalists. People who divide up the dispensations into all kinds of degrees and levels and categories that I wouldn't agree with. There's people who regard dispensations in a weird way, uh, and they lose the thread of continuity that there exists amongst the company of the redeemed throughout all generations and dispensations. So we don't want to forget that there is a continuity of God's work that goes forth from the beginning of his plan of the ages to the end while still recognizing that there is a difference, and might I say a meaningful difference, between the church and Israel. So, simply that to say, yes, there's a difference between the church and Israel. Yes, I am a dispensationalist, while not buying into what I would consider many of the more extreme or strange or aberrant ideas that sometimes get put out under the name of dispensationalism. I believe there's a difference between the church and Israel. Thank you for that question there, Alejandro. Uh, Witness for Jesus, looking forward to your Enduring Word app for Android. Yes, amen. I hope our development team is getting to work on that, and we'll have it out sooner rather than later. Um, Joel's question is very interesting, Maddie says. Yes, it is. Apologetics, I agree. Thank you. Joel, I do use your commentary in Spanish, and it is truly a blessing. Gracias. Joel, I'm so happy to hear it. Uh, and please, get word out about it. Listen, I, I just think of it this way. Um, I, I've got a free Bible resource in English, in Spanish, and increasingly in other languages, such as Arabic and Mandarin. I've got a completely free Bible resource online. That's helpful for some people. Look, it's not helpful for everybody. I'm sure there's... Quite a few people who take a look at my commentary, and it doesn't appeal to them at all. Fine. It doesn't hurt my feelings at all. I understand that. I've read the work of some other commentators, and other people are into them. I'm not. But 
I think my Bible commentary is helpful for some, so I'm delighted for it to have as wide a distribution as possible. Thanks for that, Joel. John Wisner. Hey, John. Nice to get a question from you. Pastor Dave, the junior hires asked the question, did Jesus go to hell? How would you answer that question? Thank you for your ministry. Blessings. Um, yes, John. Uh, okay, you're asking a complicated question here. Because I can't give you an absolute answer to that. Um, in Ephesians, it says this. Therefore, it says, I'm reading from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended, verse 10, is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Based on Ephesians 4, chapter 9, and a few other passages, we believe, or at least I believe, that Jesus did visit what we would call Hades. Now, that's not properly hell, meaning the lake of fire or Gehenna, but Hades, the abode of the dead before the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus visited Hades after his physical death on the cross, but before his bodily resurrection. He visited Hades and he uh, set captivity captivity. He eliminated the captivity of those who were in the region of Hades of blessing and comfort. Then the price was paid and those people could go to heaven, uh, God's dwelling place. They, they couldn't go there until the price was paid on the cross. Now, I believe that, but I've got to say, the scriptures don't give as much evidence for that perspective that I just shared uh, as I would be comfortable with. I, I wish there was more evidence of it. I don't think what I just shared with you is crazy, but I, I have to be very honest and say there's not conclusive evidence from the scriptures that that's what happened. This passage that he descended into the lower parts of the earth, there are many respectable Bible commentators who believe that that passage in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9, simply means that Jesus was put in a tomb. And that's just a, an expressive way of saying that Jesus was put in a tomb. That may very well be. Um, so I, I do believe that Jesus, he did not go to hell, that is the lake of fire or Gehenna, but he went to Hades, the abode of the dead, described in Jesus' story in the Gospel of Luke of the rich man and Lazarus. And uh, he went to Hades and he released those who were waiting for the faithful dead, uh, not the grateful dead, the faithful dead. He released them from their um, uh, place, that blessed place in Hades, and led them to heaven, to God's abode. So, again, uh, it's not quite as clear as we would like, but uh, I think that's the best explanation I could give of the cosmology. So I hold it, but I hold it lightly. Next, Ruth says, hi there, in rehab, enjoying your Q&A. Ruth, I'm looking at you right now, Ruth. God bless you. So wonderful to visit you yesterday. I pray God would continue to strengthen and bless and heal you in the hospital. I'm not going to go into uh, but anyway, God bless you, Ruth. We love you. Thank you for your help, your work with Enduring Word. And uh, I pray God gives you a very quick recovery. We love you, Ruth. All right, next, uh, Jeff. 
Blessings, brother. I'm in Romans 11 this weekend. How about Romans 11.22, cut off. Romans 11.22. I want to get a little bit of context, so I want to look at the verse with my own eyes. Romans 11.22 says, Therefore consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell, severity, but towards you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will also be cut off. All right, this is a little bit tough, and I can see why you bring this question up, Jeff, because cut off there could have a few different associations. One association, sometimes cut off, is used in the sense in the scriptures of being outside God's community, so to speak, to be excommunicated, put outside the camp of Israel or whatever. Sometimes that term cut off is used in the term of a loss of life, of execution. And the idea here is of spiritual death and assigning someone to spiritual death. Because of the context, I would take the lighter meaning here and that he's speaking about being put out of the community because that's the general context. But it is a difficult passage, and I can see where people might come to different opinions on the passage. But my first take on that is that it would be referring to someone being put out of Christian community because they don't recognize what God is doing through the Jewish people, through faithful Israel, even through Israel before the coming of Jesus. That's the whole context in Romans chapter 11 in those verses. Okay. Uh, Levi or Levi, can you pray to the Holy Spirit? Um, Look, the dominant pattern of prayer in the scriptures is simply this, that we pray to God the Father, through the mediation of God the Son, by the inspiration and infilling of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the general pattern. I don't think it's wrong to, on occasion, pray to the other members of the Godhead because they are God. And I believe as God, they do hear our prayers. I would think there would be something strange about a believer who would ignore that general order of praying to God the Father through the mediation and access of God the Son uh, by the inspiration and leading of God the Holy Spirit. That's the dominant pattern, but I I don't regard that as being like some exclusive um, thing. But it should be the dominant way that we pray to God. I hope that's clear enough. Natty's applause, applause to you. Apologetics is we don't answer. Yes, thank you, Natty. Ruth Gordon, thank you for the comment on false teaching on the Internet. Two reliable resources are EnduringWord.com and Ligonier Ministries. Thank you for that, Ruth. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for your encouraging answer to my question, Natty. You're very welcome. Matthew Smith, hi, David. Hi, back to you, Matthew. Oakley fan, I don't like the prosperity gospel like Joel Osteen. It's just fake belief. Um, I'm not familiar enough with Joel Osteen's teaching to say how much he aligns with the prosperity gospel. I think there obviously some overlap there. The, the worst offenders of the prosperity gospel thing are guys that, that um, I think of guys like, uh, well, some of these are living, some of these are dead. Kenneth Hagen, Kenneth Copeland, Frederick Price, uh, guys like this, I think, are, are some of the worst offenders in the prosperity gospel world. Um, Abilie, thank you from Italy and hope your commentaries, we have them in Italian. Hey, Abilie, I want you to know that a dear sister is working on a translation of my commentary on the Gospel of John in Italian. 
she's already finished the first couple chapters. I'm very grateful for that. And uh, when the Gospel of John's done, we're going to put it up online. So I'm very happy for that sister working on that. John Weisler, thank you. Weisner, thank you. That helps uh, immensely. And Joel, what's your opinion on Calvinism? Some very influential Bible teachers such as John MacArthur hold this theology. Okay, Joel, I'm going to make that my last answer to this uh, live session. Um, but I'm not going to go into it in great deep. I- I'll just say this. I am not a Calvinist. I do not subscribe to the five points of Calvinism. I do not believe that regeneration, being born again, comes before faith. Although I do believe very definitely that God must do a prior work within a person before they can believe. I just don't think that that belief is full on regeneration, being born again. Uh, So... I disagree with some of those fundamental portions with Reformed Theology Calvinism. However, I'll just be honest with you. I do not consider myself anti-Calvinist or anti-Reformed theology, even though in some places I think they need to be challenged and a what I would consider to be a more biblical view stated. Uh, but I think that there's been a lot of wonderful contributions made to the Christian world by our Reformed brothers. Um, there are many Reformed writers and brothers that I think Man, they've they've done a lot of good, and I've benefited from. So while not being a Calvinist or Reformed in my theology myself, there are many aspects of Reformed theology that I appreciate and have benefited by, uh, and I'm not afraid to talk about the areas where I may disagree with Reformed theology. Um, So that's it for today. All right, we're going to wrap it up here for this week's, as I said before at the beginning of the broadcast, This next Thursday, I'm going to be on an airplane during our normal broadcast time. So I will attempt to pre-record a session, and maybe we'll be able to do that and get that done. Otherwise, uh, the following Thursday, that is two weeks from today, uh, we will be live once again. And I'm going to be very happy to do that. So pleased that you could join us. So pleased that you could check out everything else, such as the Church History series that we're now releasing Several days a week, we release new content, new videos, and a church history series that I recorded about 10 years ago is going up right now. I think it's a great presentation. The camera work isn't great, and the audio isn't fantastic, but I think the content and especially the accompany graphics and slides are very helpful. Uh, And check us out at EnduringWord.com. And as I say almost every week, thank you to the people who pray for the work of Enduring Word and our Bible resources. And thank you to the people who donate and support the work. Uh, I think you're partnering by both your prayers and your support with something that God is using. And uh, we pray that he uses it more and more. Thanks so much. And uh, God bless you. We will see you the next time we're live and maybe in a pre-recorded Q&A soon as well. God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.